Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Good to have you here in the room. Those of you joining us online, so glad that you're with us. And those of you at our Skagit campus, we want to give a special shout out because today is the 10th anniversary of the launch and the start of our Skagit campus. And we're <laughs> pumped about that. Starting now, uh, we're into double digits and so excited to be with you tonight uh, for the celebration we're going to have of your 10th anniversary. So, so great uh, to see what God has done and pray for what he's going to do in and through you in the valley there. So that's an exciting time. You know, years ago, I, I read a book, it's, a, it's an allegorical novel by a short little book by a woman named Hannah Hernard. The book is called Hind's Feet on High Places. Some, maybe you've heard about it or read it. And uh, it's an allegory, and, and the, the main character, the key character, is this timid little creature with crippled feet and kind of just deformed mouth, and her name is Much Afraid. And Much Afraid is an orphan, but she's been taken in by some relatives. The family of Fearings have, have taken her into their home, and they live in the Valley of Humiliation in a little village called Much Trembling. But her nemesis throughout this book is her cousin, and his name is Craven Fear. So Much Afraid is just tormented by Craven Fear in this family of fearings. And her dream and her wish is that someday she could be on the high places with the chief shepherd. But it's just like, you know, they're, they're saying there's no way. But to be on those high places, this place of, of potential and promise to be there. And I couldn't help but think of that story as I was thinking about this sermon on Joshua and fear. Now, now with, if you've been with us like last week, you know that the sermon I wrote for last week was so long, I had to cut it in half. And so this is part two of last week's sermon. Now, if you weren't here last week and said, oh, well, we're coming in the middle of the movie, you're fine. This one kind of can stand alone, but it's connected with last weekend. This is part two of last weekend's sermon, the other half of it. One of the things I love about our elders is is we gather every Saturday morning uh, on Zoom to pray for our weekend services, to pray for our volunteers, our children, our worship, and all the, the whole services. And yesterday, as we were praying, um, they were praying for me as, as preparing to preach, and one of our elders said, well, since this is only really half a sermon, is it going to be shorter? <laughs> I feel such, a, such support and encouragement from our elders. Uh, the answer is no. It was a long sermon. That's why I cut it in half. But we're looking at this whole idea of Joshua and, and the, the concept of fear because Joshua and the people of Israel have this kind of this identity as being much afraid because there's a chance for them to have a future with incredible potential and to go into a land of promise, but fear will hold them back. In fact, their parents had the had the possibility of going into that land, but because they were much afraid, because they were a family of fearings, they were not allowed to go in. They wouldn't trust God. They weren't allowed to go into that promised land. And so they've waited now in the wilderness for 38 years for that older generation to die off. And now they're at the point again where they're going to go into the promised land. The only thing is nothing has really changed. The future is uncertain, the land is unwelcoming, and they remember hearing from their parents that there's giants in the land and they don't stand a chance. And so they could be very much afraid because they've been raised in this family of fearings as well. In addition to that, there's a whole new set of issues that are causing them fear. Moses, the only leader that they've ever known for 40 years, Moses, who delivered them out of slavery, Moses, who provided for them, Moses, who spoke to God face to face as a friend, speaks with a friend, Moses is dead. And their leader that they've known for four decades is no longer with them. 
And they're undertaking this uncertain outcome, this adventure into this new land. And Joseph, uh, uh, um, who are we talking about? Joshua. Joshua <laughs> is in charge. And while he's a good guy, he's never led a country before. He's never led a nation before. He's never taken them into the promised land. And so there's this chance for great fearing. And in the midst of all of these circumstances that could cause them to cower, cause them to be terrified, cause them to be discouraged, there's this heroic command that is given over and over again. Six times we see this. Three times in Deuteronomy 31, three times in Joshua 1, the same command is given. And five of those six times, it's given specifically to Joshua. You know what this command is, if you were here last week, Joshua 1, 9, have I not commanded you, and here are these four words, this heroic command, be strong and courageous. With all the things you're going to face, all the things you're going to encounter, all the things you're going to go to, be strong and courageous. And very often, it's paired with kind of the negative version of the positive command. He goes on to say, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I don't know if when William Shakespeare wrote Hamlet that he had any idea that the only line most of you would ever know out of that is to be or not to be. I don't know if when he wrote it, it's like, that would be the one piece that everyone would remember. That's the one that would stick out. See, some of you... That's the only thing about Hamlet you know. It's a tragedy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Somebody said, I don't get that one either. Okay, fine. Some of you didn't even know that came from Hamlet, but that's why you come to church. To be or not to be, that's a decision. But when God brings this command, he says to be and not to be to be strong and courageous and not to be terrified and not to be uh, discouraged and not to be much afraid. And when he gives this command to be and not to be, we see that the way that they can live this out, we saw this last week, is that this command, it came with a promise. It came with a promise. And the promise that it came with could really be summarized in one word, the word with, because he said, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. So while it might be terrifying, there might be some things that will cause you to be discouraged. You can be strong and courageous. Why? Because I am with you. And the whole point of last week's half sermon was that we can live in the same reality, that we have Emmanuel, God with us, that we have the Holy Spirit that dwells right within us, and that we can live our lives in this reality, that no matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter what we're engaged in, God is with us. And there might be some things that are uncertain and some things that are terrifying, some things that cause us to be discouraged, but we can be strong and courageous because God is with us. And that was the whole point of last weekend's sermon. And some of you are saying, well, why didn't you just do it that quick last weekend <laughs> instead of taking 43 minutes? Well, I could have. But then you would have missed out on all the backstory and the details and the roller skating rink story. So that was last week. Now we pick up on the second half of the sermon because this, this command, it came with a promise and instructions. And instructions. The command, be strong and courageous, don't be terrified, don't be discouraged, don't be afraid. 
the promise, because I will be with you as I was with Moses. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And he says, and this is what I need you to do. This is your part. And we'll read this in Joshua chapter one, if you have your Bible or tablet or phone or want to follow along. Joshua chapter one, and we're really going to focus on just two verses, seven and eight. He says this, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Now, some people love this verse for the reason that it talks about being prosperous and successful, and that's wonderful. And some of you are watching me on TV, and if I was a TV preacher, this is what I would lean heavily into. Be prosperous and successful. Show your seeds of success right now. Put your hand on your wallet and your hand on the TV. But I'm not going to do that because I think the prosperity and the success is not the main point of the whole passage. I don't think it's real. I think it's, it's a part of it, but I think it's kind of a byproduct. I think there's something more important he's trying to help them understand. Now, if you remember Elmer Fudd, all right, if he were reading this, he would see, say, be very, very careful. <laughs> because twice in here, God says, be careful, be careful. This isn't a casual suggestion. He's saying, well, you know, here's something to think about. He's warning them, he's exhorting them because he knows their history. He knows their propensity. He knows that they get attracted by the things to the right and to the left. Oh, a squirrel, and they chase after it. Oh, something shiny, and they go after that instead of following God's ways. He knows how quickly they can hear other voices and be pulled off track. He knows how this has happened, and he knows their future. He knows that there's gonna be some voices that they're gonna hear. There are gonna be some things that will try to pull them off, that will try to distract them, that will actually lead to their destruction, and he knows that. And so he wants to ensure that they're very careful not to do that. You know, in um, the, around the seventh century BC, uh, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Some of you were supposed to read that in high school and you, you actually did and others did not. But let me just tell you a part of it. In the Odyssey, in the Odyssey, it's a story of um, Odysseus uh, who is coming home from the Trojan War back to Ithaca. And as he sails across back home, he's given this warning. He's given a warning about these creatures called sirens. And sirens are really destructive monsters, but they disguise themselves as beautiful women with golden hair. And they will sit on the edge of the, the island of sirens, and they will sit there on the shore, these beautiful women with golden hair, combing their hair, and their beauty is eclipsed only by their angelic voices because they will sing these songs that are enchanting, these songs that are bewitching, these songs that are intoxicating, these songs that will lure them in. And he's warned, if you hear the song of the siren, if you see their beauty, you'll be drawn in and it will lead to your destruction. And there at the base of the island are the wreckage of ships and the sailors, their carcasses rotting and their, their clothes torn to shreds, if you listen to that. And, but he wants to hear it. So he hits, gets this idea. He takes all of his sailors and he puts beeswax in their ears so they cannot hear anything. And he says to them, I'm going to strap myself to the mast. And when we go past the island of the sirens, no matter what I say, don't listen to me. Just keep sailing home. And sure enough, 
They can't hear a thing. And he straps himself to the mast and they go past the island. And here are these beautiful women combing their long golden hair. And they're singing this song. Oh, listen to some of the lyrics translated one way. This Odysseus, bravest of heroes. Oh, the male ego is so, so susceptible. Draw near to us on our green island. Odysseus, we'll teach you wisdom. We'll give you love sweeter than honey. The songs we sing soothe away sorrow. And in our arms, you will be happy. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, the songs we sing will bring you peace. And he wants to go so bad. And he's telling his sailors, go, let's go. Let's turn this way. Let's go towards the island there. Let's, let's go hear them. They're calling us in. And the sailors can't hear any of it. And they don't because they know there's a song going in their mind. Oh, here she comes. Watch out, boy. She'll chew you up. She's a man eater. And they sail on by. It sounded so sweet. It seemed so right. It looked so appealing. But if you turn to the right, if you hear those voices, it will end in destruction. It will derail you from what you're really all about. And it's this message that God is trying to help them be warned about. I mean, before Moses died, just a couple months earlier in this passage, he says to them, he says, listen, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. You decide, but I'm telling you, choose life. Choose the blessings. And then he follows it up and he says this in Deuteronomy 30. Love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to want to chase. A lot of things that are going to try to draw you off. A lot of things that will try to derail you or distract you. from. But love God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him because he's your life. See, they're getting ready to cross into the promised land. But as we've seen, it's not just a promised land. It's a promised life. It's more than just, here's a formula so you can get a piece of real estate on the other side of the river. That was going to happen, but this wasn't what it was about. He said, this is the pattern for all of life. If you want to understand and experience life, this is how you have it. Now, let's be really honest about this. If he's trying to convince them to stay with him and, and to have this prosperous life of success, I mean, you would think that maybe he would couch it in different terminology. Because maybe you picked up on this in, in verses six and seven, that it's like, okay, there's, it's got a little bit of a negative twist to it. I mean, someone needs to work on kind of like rebranding this thing or, or something. It's just the way that you're marketing it isn't, isn't real appealing. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at this. Verse six, uh, seven and eight, excuse me. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not let this book of the law depart. I mean, it's like, okay, whoa, 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 we're liking the success and the prosperity, but man, the law thing, just go easy on the law thing. Why are you leading with the law? I mean, there's something, laws are important. We need them. But our human nature is, if someone's telling us what we can't do or what we have to do, there's just an immediate like, wait a second, don't tell me what to do. Like this law and, and all these things and like, I don't want this. It seems so restrictive and, and, and it, it's limiting me and it's, it's taking away my life and all of this. And then he goes on and talks about the book of the law. And now think about this. At this point, they don't have a Bible like you and I do. In fact, they don't even have the Torah like the Jewish people would have later. What they have is five books called the Pentateuch. 
the first five books of the Bible, the five books that Moses has been working 38 years to write down, that's all they've got. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This book of the law. Now, and, and some of you know, I mean, because I hear this every year, someone say, you know what, I'm gonna read straight through the Bible this year. You get going and Genesis is great. Love that story about Noah and Joseph is awesome. Lot's got some weird stuff going on. You get into Exodus like, oh yeah, I saw this movie, but the book is better and all, that, you know, all the Moses stuff. And then you get into Leviticus. All these laws, ceremonial laws, social laws, religious laws, dietary laws, all this. And you're just like, oh, whoa. See, the book of Leviticus is the very reason some of you have never, ever read the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because you never got there. Because Leviticus was, was so disorienting to you, so discouraging that you stopped. This book of the law is like, that's what we've got to deal with? Come on. And yet, yet later, the psalmist and others would write words like these, Psalm 1972, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Really? Like Leviticus? I, mean, I wouldn't give you 15 bucks for that. And you're saying it's worth thousands of pieces of silver and gold? I mean, is, is he reading something different than I'm reading? Or is he just like this law freak that just loves to read through law books and all these lists of all these weird things? Or, or is it a perspective thing? And maybe it's a perspective thing. So when you hear the phrase, book of the law, what comes to your mind? Is it rules or relationship? See, if the book of the law, if all it is, is a bunch of commands of things I can't do, things I have to do to try to control my life and limit my life, then yeah, it's very, very negative. It's seen only as negative. But in the Jewish mind, when they had the proper perspective, the book of the law spoke about a relationship that they had. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. I have delivered you. I will bless you. You will be, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And because we have this covenant that we're in, this is kind of the, the term and agreement of the covenant. Other nations didn't have that. He wouldn't be their God and they wouldn't be his people. They wouldn't be a kingdom of priests. This was exclusive because he was, they were in a relationship and then they began to understand this law defines the fact that we are God's chosen people. We have this relationship and from this relationship would flow life and blessings and all the goodness of God. That if they would love the Lord and live his law, they would not only get the real estate, but they would experience more importantly, life. Life in the blessings of God. Life in all of the benefits that come with following his word. Life in all of its beauty, the way it was created to be lived. I like how the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, this picture of God's law and his commands and his, his ordinances and all that. And he, he lists them off. And then he, each one, he talks about one of the qualities of that. And then he talks about the result of living according to that. In Psalm 19, he says, the law of the Lord, and he gives the quality, is perfect. And he says, here's what happens. 
reviving the soul. And the statutes of the Lord, they're trustworthy, making wise the simple. And the precepts of the Lord, they're right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord, they're radiant, giving light to the eyes. And the fear of the Lord, it, it's pure and enduring forever. And the ordinances of the Lord, they are sure and altogether righteous. And he said, these, these are to be desired more than gold, more than much fine gold. and Because they, they're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And he says, by them, by all of these things, by, by his law, by his statutes, by his, his precepts, by his commands, by, by his ordinances, by them, your servant is warned and keeping them there's great reward. He says, this is the path to this life filled with blessings and beauty. Now, as we've said, while some of the details of this are, are 3,500 years old, the principles and the issues are as relevant to us today as ever before. That God has given us his word. He's shown us his way. He leads us in his will. And when we follow that, we experience life. See, many of us, probably most of us, if we were honest, the biggest regrets we have in our lives, if we look back over our lives, the biggest regrets we have are the times that we went with our will, not God's will. Times we followed our thinking instead of God's wisdom. Times we went with the voices of this world instead of the voice of God's word. And so he says, I want this to breathe life that you can experience that. And then he gets really specific. And I want to just kind of walk through some of the specificity that he gives to them about this word of God, the word of the law. 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. So what does that mean? Do not let the book of the law, do not let God's word depart from your mouth. Well, maybe it means to read it but maybe it's more than just reading it. Maybe it's talking about it. Maybe it's discussing it. And this would be really, really important for them because they didn't have copies of the Bible. There were a few copies, you know, one in the Ark of the Covenant and maybe a couple of others. And there were times when all of it was read to the entire nation publicly. And we'll, we'll look at that in a few weeks. But to talk about it, to discuss it, to learn as, as you talk about God's word. See, this is why we want you to not just have Bible input on Sunday morning, but to read it on your own. This is why, one of the big reasons why we want you in a small group or a quad or connecting with others is that you can talk about God's word. You can discuss these scriptures. You can learn from each other. You can have iron sharpening iron. You can take his word and see how does this apply to our lives today. To talk about, do not let it depart from your mouth. And just before this whole thing happened, um, Moses had written Deuteronomy, and in that is the Shema. This is the prayer that the Jewish people would pray to this day, every morning and every night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then the next verses say this. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, Impress them on your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Not only is this supposed to be on your lips, it's supposed to be on your heart. And you're supposed to just talk about it throughout your day as you walk along. It's the things you do. And he says, and impress them on your children. Can I just for a moment talk to you parents? I'm so grateful that we have a church with an incredible children's ministry, our Explorers League children's ministry, where your kids can hear age-appropriate lessons about God's love and how he wants to be their forever friend and how they can trust him and, and follow him. And it's a wonderful thing. And I want to encourage you, if you don't, to have your kids involved with this so they can get that input. But the truth is this. Your kids, on the best case scenario, if you never miss, get that one hour a week here. Okay, okay a little longer because I preach. But about an hour a week. The biggest spiritual influencers in your kid's life is you. Because you get to spend throughout the day, throughout the week with them. And here's a beautiful thing that our Explorers League Children's Ministry has for you. If you're like, okay, that's intimidating to me. They have things on the website where you can click for parents. And there's a thing called Parent Cues, C-U-E-S, Cues. These kind of these prompts uh, to help, you know, how could, I, how could I take what they learned in their class or in their session today, and how can I talk about that throughout the week? Like when I'm tucking them in or when we're in the car or when we're having dinner or when we're just kind of spending some time together. It just kind of helps out. And there's all these resources to help as you impress these on your kids. And he says, listen, this is so important. God's word is so important. Don't let it leave your mouth. And then he goes a step further. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. And this gets people all weirded out. The meditation thing is like, oh, okay, this is getting weird and I can't twist up like a pretzel. I don't even want to. And, I, and the, what, you know, I met some weird people that meditate. Okay, whatever. Let, let's take the weirdness out of this. Let me just kind of boil it down to you. Generally speaking, Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind, getting neutral or whatever that might be. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. Biblical meditation, when the Bible talks about med meditating, is about filling your mind. Filling your mind with truth. Filling your mind with scripture. Filling your mind with God's word. And then just thinking about that. Chewing on that. Kind of going over it again and again. Just kind of ruminating on that. And kind of letting it marinate on your, in your mind and your heart and your soul. Like, Meditation doesn't have to be weird and it doesn't have to be over an hour a day. Or what. It's just having God's word in your mind. See, if you've ever worried about anything, that's negative meditation. Get something stuck in your head, you think about it over and over again. That's meditation, but it's just a negative one. This is about putting God's word, a verse, a truth of God's word in your mind and to think about these things over and over again. Let it kind of become the soundtrack. Let it be the mixtape. Let it be your playlist. I've got to believe that the psalmist stole part of his Psalm 1 from this passage. Because in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, you know, how blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Sound familiar? Yes. He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and his leaves never wither. Whatever he does prospers. Sounds just like what we've read. And it's about meditating. And he says, and this is good. Talk about it. Think about it. But don't stop there. 
If all you do is talk about it and think about it, you haven't gone far enough. And what he points out is that obedience is imperative. It's an absolute must. And not only is it a must, it answers the question, why? Why do we even have God's word input in our life? Why do we even listen to sermons? Why do we even read the Bible? Why do we even study it in small groups? Why do we even talk about it? Why do we even think about it? Why do we even meditate on it? He says, I'll tell you why. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that, here's the reason, so that you will win a quizzing contest and get a ribbon to take home and maybe a plaque. No. It's not what it says. So you'll be able to beat people over the head with your biblical knowledge and slam them with the word of God. No. So you'll be able to impress families and friends at Thanksgiving. No. Here's why. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. It's to apply it to your life. To, to live it out. Not just to know it, not just to believe it, not just to agree with it, but to live it. I find this interesting that at this point anyway, this command or this instruction is given specifically to Joshua, inadvertently but not directly, to the whole nation. And maybe it's because God knows if there's any chance that anyone's going to do this, it's Joshua and not the whole nation. And you think, let, let me back you know, rewind 40 years before. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been delivered out of slavery. Moses has been on the mountain. He has now this book of the law, not the stone tablets, the book of the law. He comes down, and this is what we read in Exodus 24. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Ah, oh, this is great. People that are excited to be obedient, that's the kind of group you'll want to be a pastor of. We'll do it. We're in. You can count on us. One of the things in that book of the covenant was a little line out of a thing called the Ten Commandments that says, you shall have no other idols before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not create any idol or worship it. Next scene, 40 days later, they're having a rave in front of a golden calf. Like, what happened to, yeah, you can count on us, we're in, you know, we're there. They so often get pulled to the right or to the left. And when, um, when I read that, I think, oh, why couldn't they just, it's so obvious. And then I start looking at my own life. How many times I said, well, okay, God, I'm going I'm to do this. And then I get pulled off. Man, I promise, you know, and then maybe I'm not that much different than they are. I've said over the years, I was born in Ruston, Louisiana. And my, uh, my dad was a pastor of a little church there and, uh, um, in, the, in the 60s. And in this little church, there was another couple that was about my parents' age, the Womacks. Joe, uh, uh, Joe was on the board of trustees. He was a professor at Louisiana Tech, go Bulldogs. And he, um, his wife, Anita, and my mom, Rena, were best friends. And so, you know, my dad's a pastor. Joe's on the board and, and friendship. Well, 
My mom got pregnant with me. She had two other kids. They, they kept trying until they got it right. So that was me. Uh, <laughs> kidding. She got pregnant with me. And then about four months later, three and a half months later, Anita got pregnant. And I was born and then Paul was born, Paul Womack. And we were like born less than four months apart. In fact, today is his birthday. And uh, actually I messaged him this morning, told him I was gonna preach about him today. So Paul and I were born three and a half months apart and we were like from the cradle. I mean, we were, our, our parents were best friends and so we did stuff together. And you know, we had, as little kids growing up, play dates together and sleepovers together and tea parties and watching and playing games, all this stuff. And we always went to church together. And some of you know what going to church meant. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival meetings, VBS, missionary meetings, choir practice. I mean, we were at church a lot. Every Sunday, twice, you know, and it wasn't padded seats like this as we talked about a few weeks ago. I mean, there were hard pews. And when they didn't have children's church for us, we were in there. So Paul and I, as we reach a little bit older, we go off to, to kindergarten together and we're best friends. We've done everything together. We've gone to church for five years together now. We go off to kindergarten, A.E. Phillips Elementary School. Mrs. Orr was our kindergarten teacher. And, and in the midst of things, she sat us all in a circle. And one day she said, okay, boys and girls, today we want you to tell us what is your favorite song? And so they started going around the circle and they said, you know, eensy teensy spider, you know, that whole rain tragedy thing, or I'm a little teapot, you know, those kind of songs like that, or twinkle, twinkle, little stars. Well, Mrs. Orr said to our parents, when it got to, to Paul and I, I mean, we were sitting right next, we were inseparable. And they're asking, what are your favorite songs? It got to Paul and I. And what we said was, just as I am and trust and obey. <laughs> I mean, because what kindergartner doesn't have hymns as their favorite song in life? I mean, we're going to have a little altar call there. That, those were our songs, just as I am. I mean, we sat through some altar calls that went on and on. And trust and obey, that was a beautiful song. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And God says, I need Paul and Bobby to go to my people. I need them to tell them you can trust and you can obey. You can follow his words because that's the way to life. And sometimes we get to thinking about all the laws or all the ways of God and all these things. And God's just, I've got to do these things or God's going to be mad. I've got to be obedient or God's going to be angry. I've got to do this or I'm going to get punished. I've got to do this because otherwise God will be disappointed. Can I just say this and hear me all the way out on this one? God does not need our obedience. I know that might like be like, kind of the disequilibrium of a state like that. He doesn't need our, dis, our obedience. If you denied God, never believed in him, never followed a word he said, it doesn't change who he is or his character. We need our obedience. Moses would write these words, Deuteronomy 10, observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Why does God give us these things? To control us? Because he needs to feel worshiped? No. Because he loves us and he wants to provide and protect 
and show us how to have life as we were created to live. Now, we're talking about Joshua, so let me, let me fast forward in Joshua's life. Joshua's heard these things from Moses. He's heard these things from the Lord. He's observed how it plays out. He saw how when Pharaoh doesn't listen to God, there's consequences. He saw and experienced how when his parents trusted God and put blood over the doorpost, his own life was spared. He saw how when Moses followed God and was obedient to raise the staff before the Red Sea didn't make any sense at all that God provided and God blessed. He saw how the 10 spies came back filled with fear, much afraid, and riled everybody up. And because of that, they don't get to experience the promised land. He saw how Aaron and Moses, in their human short-sighted anger and pride, were not going to get to experience. He saw the blessings and curses that come with obedience and disobedience. And he followed the Lord. As we saw in, in uh, week one in Numbers 32, it says he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And he hears this word, and he lives it out. Now, I was thinking about that quote from uh, Frederick Nietzsche. He's not a Christian. He actually was an atheist. But he, he said this, great quote. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. And there thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what Joshua does. So fast forward 50 years, and we'll get to this in six or seven weeks, but I want to give you a little, little preview. He's at the end of his life, and he addresses all of Israel. And he's heard some words five decades before that he's lived for five decades now. And he says, kind of, if I have anything I can leave you with, it's this. It says in Joshua 23, 6, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Those were the exact words, the exact instruction God had given to him 50 years earlier. And he lived it and he saw how God is faithful and he says to them, listen, it's not just because it's God's word. It's because it's true. Look what he says in verse 14. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, which we all will one day. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. God is a promise keeper. You can trust him and trust him and obey him and live this way. So the details are different. The circumstances are different. But the issues are exactly the same for us today. Because we live in a world and a culture that has all kinds of voices that want us to go right or left away from God's word. All kinds of pressure from friends, from coworkers, from schoolmates, from, from family members. All kinds of things that we would like to chase. Look at that squirrel. Look at this shiny thing. Go after all these things. And we have to decide. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to obey him? Are we going to go the way everyone else does? God has given us his word. Not just to know it, not just to read it, not just to memorize it and meditate it. Those are all good things. 
but to live it. What did Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a man who built his house on the rock. It's in the doing. And Jesus' half-brother, James, would say these words, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just come to church and say, mm, that was a good sermon and never do anything. Don't just read God's word and say, well, that's interesting stuff. And never. It says, you're fooling yourself. Do what it says. So, so what if? What if we, you and I, were a little more like Joshua and a little less like the Israelites when it comes to following God wholeheartedly and obeying his word? What if we were a little more like Joshua and a little less like the culture around us and followed God's word? And what if you and I were a little more like Joshua and a little less like ourselves in following God's word? I want to throw a question out there for you to wrestle with. Don't be too quick to answer this one. Wrestle with this one. Do I trust God's word more than my own thoughts and feelings? You say, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, hold on, Israelites. Do I trust God's word more than I do my own thoughts and feelings? Do I trust God's word when applying it means I have to do something that maybe is counterintuitive? Maybe it's countercultural. Maybe it's not what everybody else is doing. Maybe it doesn't make sense to me. Do I trust God's word when it may cost me some, when it's inconvenient, when maybe there's some sacrifice? Or to live according to his word, my attitude towards others that are different than me changes. The, the way I act towards those that aren't like me. When God's word causes me to reevaluate some things in my finances and generosity, and my sexuality and my purity and my social concerns and justice, do I trust God's word more than my own thoughts and my own feelings? I read a quote this week from Jackie, uh, Jackie Chan, Francis Chan. <laughs> I knew that was gonna happen all weekend. I made it this far until the 11 o'clock. Francis Chan. Oh my word. It's a good quote, though. Francis Chan. Francis Chan said this. Whenever I disagree with God's word, I will assume I'm wrong. I love that. Yes. Do you know how arrogant it is for me in all of my 59 years of experience and my four pounds of gray matter that I think that somehow I know better than the one who set the stars in place, the eternal infinite one who is all-knowing that somehow I know better than him? If ever I disagree, I'm just going to assume I'm wrong. Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. We can trust and obey. There's a song we sing around here. Let me just read these lyrics to you. You are a promise keeper. Your word will never fail. My heart can trust you, Jesus. I won't be overwhelmed. My eyes are going to see miracles and victories. You are a promise keeper, and your word will never fail.
Cornwall, I want us to be people of the word, to not let it depart from our mouth, to meditate on it day and night so that we will be careful to do everything written in it. That is success, living God's life.